0: Philippians chapter number one, we're going to talk this morning about what I'm calling a powerful prayer. Paul, for eight verses, has expressed his love to this church and this introduction, and he is now in verse number nine getting to a prayer for this church. And I love to pray the prayers of the Bible. This has been a relatively recent development for me, maybe in the last three or four years, to pray the prayers of the Bible. But that's something beautiful that I would encourage you to do in your own prayer time. And this morning, we're going to look at one of these prayers of the Bible that Paul was praying for this church at Philippi. And we learned in verse number four, Paul said that he made a request for the Philippians with joy. But he did not tell us exactly what he was praying. Now in verse number nine, he will tell us, what he's praying for these people in his specific request. So I want us to examine this this morning. He's coming out of verse 8 where he just told them, I long for you and, and I just I desire you with the affection of Jesus Christ and the bowels of Jesus Christ. I long for you. And he segues right out of that into this beautiful, potent, powerful prayer in verse number 9. And This is what he says. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offence to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. I want us just to break down this uh, this prayer and these three verses into little bite-sized pieces, and I want us just to start with uh, what I would call the prayers, because Paul says. This I pray, and he prays really in three components. There are three facets to this prayer in verse number 9, and then verses 10 and 11 tells us the results or the purposes that flow out of this prayer if this prayer is answered. But I want us to fully understand and grasp exactly what is Paul praying for here in verse number 9. So the first thing that Paul is praying for is the addition of love. And I know the screen says the addition of prayers. It's the addition of love. And Paul says this, this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. So we've already covered this, this church at Philippi, which really was a loving church. This church loved Paul. Paul loved them. They both loved the Lord Jesus. So there was a lot of love Happening in this church, and you can see that in the first eight verses that Paul just oozes and gushes at them, and he really, really cares deeply for this church. They hold a special place in his heart, but Paul really does indict them with this prayer request that they have some growing to do, that they have some learning to do, that their love could continue to abound, could continue to increase, that although they're loving, they yet have a ways to go, and I think is a really fitting indictment for our church in that I feel our church as a whole really is a loving place. We hear that over and over again from our visitors that come. They will tell us something to the tune of, I felt welcome, I felt that the people were friendly, I felt that there was love there. Uh, we hear that even from our members, that if you've been here any length of time, you likely know and have experienced that this is a loving bunch of people that are here. Are we perfect? No, absolutely not. Do we have our issues? Yes, absolutely. Are there times where someone's going to annoy you or bug you or set your teeth on edge? Yes, but by and large, the pettiness and the catty behavior that exhibits itself in in many churches just across the board, by and large, that is not a part of the fabric of our church, and there is a fabric of love, and I believe that with all my heart. But what Paul is saying here to this church that already loved well, he's telling them increase in your love, abound in your love more and more. That you're not going to hit a point where you have too much love. You're never going to reach a moment where you say, you know what, I just think we got to tone down the love stuff. I mean, we just, we smile, we hug each other, and we care for each other, and we bear each other's burdens, and and we try to, we try to help each other, and and we really want what's best for each other, and at times, we speak the truth in love, and you know what? We've just done too much of that. Let's, Let's just be cranky and divisive. We'll never reach that moment. There will always be some learning and growing to do when it comes to this issue of love, and Paul understands this. And he says, church at Philippi, this church is not Corinth, okay? Paul wrote to Corinth and told them, you're carnal, and you're divisive, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Jesus, and you're all at each other, and you're factional. This is not that church. This is a church that's doing well, that's thriving, that there's spiritually mature people that are loving each other, but he still told them, my prayer for you is that you would increase and abound in that love more and more, that it would increase in knowledge, it would increase in depth of insight, that you would continue to have more of this. Now this is fitting, because love is a characteristic of Christ. Jesus Christ shows us what true love is. True love is that that that's sacrificial, it's more than emotion. Jesus said, uh, I say Jesus said, Paul said in Romans about Jesus that greater love hath no man than this than a man lay down his, his life for his friends. And you see that in Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for us who at that point were even enemies. Laid down his life. So the love of Christ is not just emotion. It is self-sacrificial. It is giving. It is, there, there is an action to love. Love's an action verb. I, for a period of maybe two or three years, have been searching diligently for a good working definition of love because love is really tough to just nail down and put your thumb on and to figure out how do we define this. And especially in our culture, I've said this several times, that love is is such a junk drawer word that we just say we love everything. We love our car, and we love our pets, and we love our kids, and we love our sports teams, and we love toast, and we don't mean the same thing by all of them. But we just, we throw love at them. And on top of all that, our culture has redefined love to be this, I just accept everything. I, they've redefined tolerance as well to where love is tolerant. Tolerance means that I put my stamp of approval. I never have anything that I disagree with you about or correct you or tell you that you're wrong on. That we just accept everything and that's what's loving. And many, even churches, have gone beyond that just to, to really isolate one characteristic of God. God is love. That's a true statement. But God is, yes, He's loving and gracious and kind. Sure, merciful. But He's also holy and righteous. And, and there's judgment in God. And many, even Christians, have isolated just love. And made it just this emotion of, well, we just accept everything and everything's okay, honky-dory, we're part of the get-along gang. So how do we combat all of these ways that we've redefined love and really know what Paul is saying here? What What is he after? What is he trying to get at here? And I found this week in my study... In my opinion, I don't have a verse for this, but in my opinion, the best definition of love that I have found to date, and here is the simple definition of love that I found. Love is placing a high value on someone else and actively seeking their benefit. That is the best definition I have yet to come up with to try to help summarize what true love is. It's placing a high value on someone else and actively seeking their benefit. So this definition would help us, help us cut through some of the nonsense. If you say, I love Pop-Tarts, well, do you mean that you put a high value on Pop-Tarts and you actively seek their benefit? No, you don't. So you don't really love Pop-Tarts, you like Pop-Tarts. I do too, the S'morth kind, they're great. Break them in half, they're fantastic. Some of you are like, Pop-Tarts, why would you possibly put that in your body? I don't know. They're just good. But I don't love them. I like them. This would also help us understand in real life relationships. Well, I just don't love him anymore. I don't love her anymore. In pastoral ministry, you hear that relatively often. And if by I don't love them anymore, you mean I don't highly value them any longer, and I'm not actively seeking their benefit any longer, well, then, okay, that may be true, but that's a you problem, not a they problem. That love is, biblical love is, is supposed to be pointed back to you, that you love people oftentimes despite who they are or what they do or what they say. You, you try to value them and seek their benefit, not because of what they do, because of who you are, because of what Christ has done for you, and you want to exhibit that to them. This is why there's so much instruction to to love our enemies and to bless them that curse you and to pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. How could we possibly have that instruction? Well, it's not dependent upon them. It's dependent upon us saying, you know what? I value that other person, and I'm going to actively seek their benefit. This is what the love of God and the love of Jesus is and was. God so loved that he what? Gave. That he valued us and sought our benefit, not because we deserved it, but he sought our benefit and died for our sins so that we could enter into relationship with him, be forgiven, and have a home in heaven. That's, that's true love. Galatians tells us that all the law is fulfilled in one word. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You love other people as you love you. You put them. You value them. You, you want what's best for them. You put them first. That is, that is real love. And what Paul is saying here, Is my prayer request, first and foremost, to you, church at Philippi, is that you would abound more and more in valuing other people, that you would abound more and more in actively seeking the benefit of other people, that you would learn to do this well, that you would go bananas here, that you would continue to increase and to grow and to add love to your hearts and to your body, that you would continue to grow in this. But beyond this, he says this, that there should be an acquisition of knowledge. I want your love to abound more and more in knowledge. So Paul is praying really a second thing here, ever-increasing love and also ever-increasing knowledge. And there's an understood here. Paul is not just praying that we would know anything. Pick what you want. Get some knowledge about hunting. Get some knowledge about fishing. Get some knowledge about crocheting. Get some knowledge about, you know, just learn the table of elements. That's good knowledge and, and, and memorize that. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is specifically honing in on here a specific kind of knowledge that he elaborates on very clearly in Colossians. Colossians, he prayed a, a similar prayer for the Colossian church in verse number 9 of chapter 1 there, and he, and he prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and understanding. In chapter 2, Paul elaborates further on that and says the knowledge that he's after and the learning that he wants them to have is about Jesus. Jesus. So this knowledge that he wants them to have is is very clearly a knowledge of God, a knowledge of his word, a knowledge of Jesus Christ, to continue to learn and to grow and to increase knowledge of this. And this is more than and beyond knowing about something. Jesus was often just, just in people's faces who knew all about God and knew all about the Bible, but they had nothing in the heart. They could quote the Scriptures, they memorized the law, they, they knew the do's and don'ts, and they robotically went through the movement, movements all the time. Jesus was, was constantly in those people's faces. They had some knowledge here, but there was nothing in the heart. This knowledge is designed to be not just knowing something about, not just taking in the Bible and coming to church so that I can learn a little bit more, but it's, it's rather knowing that comes from a personal relationship. The best way I could illustrate this would be with with my own wife. My wife and I met when I was in between my junior and senior year of Bible college. I was getting a bachelor's degree in theology in Arkansas, and I went out to California for a summer to intern at a church. And my wife was not a member of of a church at that moment, but she had grown up in that church, and she came back to visit for a week. And I was able to meet Maggie Rule and spend four or five days with her and about a thousand other people at this big camp in Northern California. And I met her. I got to quote unquote, know her a little bit. And if I would have gone home to Arkansas and you asked me, do you know Maggie Rule? I could have answered in the affirmative and said, yes, I know Maggie Rule. But I began to know her in deeper and fuller ways as our relationship continued. I went home to Arkansas and we really, we weren't, talking, texting much, anything like that, but I couldn't get this girl out of my mind. Just everywhere I went, everything I did, there was just Maggie was on my mind all the time. I know Jesus should have been. I'm sure he was too, but Maggie was on my mind. So I called Maggie and I said, Maggie, this is Mark. Remember me? Yeah, I remember you. I know that we don't know each other, like I only know four or five days of you, but what I do know I really like, and I want to get to know you better And she reluctantly, but thankfully she did, she reluctantly agreed to this. And we began a year-long process of talking on the phone and sending each other emails and writing each other notes. Skype was just like just out. There wasn't even FaceTime yet, so we would Skype occasionally. We began that process of engaging in a relationship and getting to know each other. You know what happened over that year? We began to know each other, and that began to increase and abound more and more. And then I moved to California. I was wanting to get my master's degree, and I was debating between a school in Tennessee and a school in California. They were about even, but there was this girl by this one in California, and that made the decision really easy. It was, I didn't have to pray about it. It was just like, I'm going there. I did pray about it. I'm kidding. But it was, it was an easy prayer. I was like, pray- yes, okay, I'm going. I didn't fast. I prayed. But I went. And we spent a year together before we got married. And you know what happened through that relationship? I began to know her better. And she began to know me better. Not just on the phone getting to know each other's thought patterns, but now we began to see each other live and walk every single day. Every day. And then I got married. And I thought I knew Maggie Rule when I got married. And she thought she knew Mark Likens. And we became a couple. And then what happened? Reality slapped us inside the head. And we figured out we don't really know each other. And our idealized views of each other begin to crumble, right? Because it does, and every time you, that happens. But w- you know what happened over the past eight years of marriage? We've gotten to know each other better and better and better. And tough times have come, and we've walked through trials together, and that's helped us know each other a little better. And we've talked more, and we've gone on more dates, and we've now had kids, and, and life has begun to happen. And our knowledge of each other through relationship has increased and increased and increased. And Lord willing, that will continue for the next decade and then 20 years and 30 years. And some of you have been married for 30 and 40, and 50 years and you're thinking, oh, you're eight years in, you don't even know nothing yet. Just wait. You still got a ways to go. But what happened? I, got, I have got to know that girl better more and more over and over again through relationship, through walking, through talking, through doing life together. And what Paul is after here is a knowledge about God and his will, a knowledge about Jesus Christ that comes only through relationship with him. And he's praying that their love would abound, but also that their knowledge would increase, that they would, that they would learn more of Jesus. And his prayer request is not just, okay, pray this, and God will download information in your mind, and now you have knowledge. No, he's praying that something would work itself out, that they would, that they would take in more Bible, that they would continue to learn, that they would continue to pray, that they would continue to, to have relationship, that that would happen over and over and over again. And this is his, this is his prayer request for them. They need knowledge of God. And this, this should happen for you. This really should be a prayer request from my heart to you, from, from you for your family, uh, for maybe your, you, you, for our church family as a whole, that you should want this to happen. For there to be knowledge that, that comes and increases. Not so that we're little Bible dictionaries and we just know every verse and we can quote a verse off the top of our head. We have Siri for that. If, if that's all that we need. It's, it's more than that. It's deeper than that. And Paul's saying, my prayer, Colossian church, or Philippian church, my prayer is that you would increase, abound in your love. That you would increase, abound in your knowledge of God and his will and of Jesus Christ. And beyond that, he also prays for application of insight. He says that you would abound in love and knowledge and in, he uses the word judgment. Now the English word judgment is used quite a bit throughout the New Testament, but The root word that's translated judgment, the Greek word for this, is actually only used one time. The actual Greek word is right here in this verse. It's it's only used one time in all of the Bible. And it's a very unique word. It's tough to pin down exactly what it means. But it it really denotes this this moral understanding based on experience. If I could put it, the best way I could put it would be its moral insight. Paul is praying that they would increase in their love, that they would increase in in their knowledge, that they would increase even in their moral Insight. It's not just enough to know right and wrong. You need to be able to know what to do with that, how to apply that, what to do in your life. You need to be able to discern right behavior and how to act appropriately in certain situations. And, And knowledge and insight go hand in hand. They're meant to reflect each other and oftentimes our right behavior is predicated by revealed truth. That your, your knowledge needs to come first so that right behavior can flow out of that. And truth is the basis for any right behavior. And many times people miss this. Many parents miss this. That you know the behavior you want out of your children and you even expect that behavior, but you've never trained them or taught them or tried to teach them what to do or what not to do. You just expect them to, to be, you know, little geniuses that figure it out and act the right way. No. There's a lot of training and teaching that goes first because truth is the foundation for that right behavior. Many churches miss this. I don't think our church does. I think we do a good job of this. But many churches will accept people maybe into their membership or they will have someone that comes and gets saved and they begin to grow. And all of a sudden they expect that person to exhibit right behavior, but they have a very low baseline of knowledge. And before that right behavior begins to manifest itself, there needs to be some growing. There needs to be some maturing. And as we mature in Jesus, we should naturally have a little bit more moral insight. We should be able to discern what is right and wrong. We should be able to, to know and be able to test the spirits, as John says. And if we're not careful, we can get to a point where we expect people to exhibit right behavior without first trying to teach and give them knowledge and give them instruction. And that, it doesn't work if you just want to expect right behavior out of people at the end. If there, if there are those that you know, maybe you work with them and they're a Christian, maybe they're, maybe they're in your family, maybe they're in your church family, and you would look at them and think, you know what, I think that they need to grow in their moral insight. I think that they need to grow in discerning what's, what's right and wrong, what's good and best. It seems like they're making some, some wrong choices. You know, they're, they told me that's their favorite TV show, and I, I know, Jesus ain't watching that TV show. Or they, you know, you, you listen to what? You did what? You went where? You did, you, and you find yourself, that, not in a judgmental way, but but you find those wheels turning in your head. The solution to that problem is not to take the Isaiah scroll and roll it out with a laundry list of do's and don'ts. Here's all the things that you need to do and here's the rules to abide by. The solution for that is that they would grow in their love, in their knowledge of God, and in their judgment, in their moral insight. There's a root problem. There's a spiritual problem. And, this, and the solution is not to try to laundry list it for them. It is, it is this prayer, and Paul knows this. And he says, I'm praying specifically that you, would add no, that you would add love, that your love would abound more and more, that you would value other people more, that you would seek their benefit more. I'm praying that your knowledge of God and his will and of Jesus would, would that grow in that. That's what our Sunday night series in Colossians has been all about. We've been 20 weeks in Colossians just looking at Jesus week after week after week after week because that's important, vitally important. That you would even grow in your, in your moral insight and your discernment there. And then he says, here are, if this prayer is answered and this is realized in your life, here is what's going to result. Here are the purposes. Here's why I pray this. I, I don't pray this just as an end in and of itself. This, this prayer request being answered is a means to an end. And, and here's what it is. Here are the purposes. There are three of them. Spiritual vision. He says, I pray, verse 9, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment That ye may approve things that are excellent. I'm praying this so that you can approve, that's examine or discern, things that are excellent, meaning the best way. I'm praying this because if this is materialized, you will be able to discern what is best. We are relatively enamored for some years with Sherlock Holmes, a fictional character. We have books and TV shows and movies all about Sherlock Holmes. And we admire this fictional character's power of deduction. And Paul is praying for spiritual deduction here. He's praying that you would be able to spiritually discern between what is good and what is best, between what is right and what is wrong. He's praying that this would, that this would take root in them, that there would be some moral insight that comes, that naturally as they grow in love and, and knowledge and judgment, that there's going to be this spiritual vision, that they're going to be able to discern and approve what is best. What's the best way here? And there are, this week, there will be a million scenarios that are thrown at you throughout the course of your, in your parenting, in your work life, in decisions that you need to make, and I can't give you the solution to every one of them and tell you what you should do in every, in every scenario. So what's, what's the answer? Is the answer just to have, you know, Pastor Mark or someone else on speed dial and every time you have to make a spiritual discernment to call someone up and call someone up and call someone up? we're available and we'd love to help and we'd love to counsel and that certainly has its place but that's not the answer the answer is that you would begin to grow spiritually in your own insight and vision and that that would begin to mature inside of you and that you would be able to discern that for yourself that you would get into a place where you could shepherd your family and your children and to be able to discern for them and paul's saying the purpose of this prayer the, the fruit of this root, if you increase in your, in your love and in your knowledge and your, in your moral insight, the, the fruit of this is that you're going to have a spiritual vision. And beyond that, you're going to have spiritual validity. He, validity, He says in verse number nine, the second part of it, or verse number 10, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. That word sincere means without wax say, without wax, that's weird. It does sound weird at first, but understand the culture. In the first century, you would often hire some sort of a potter or sculptor that would maybe make out of marble or granite or some sort of stone, or maybe they'd take clay and they'd fashion it. They would make, you'd hire them to make a statue or to make something for you. And if that sculptor made a mistake and cracked the statue or cracked what he was working on, he would oftentimes fraudulate the uh, the image and would apply wax to the crack and would end up glossing over it or painting over it to present a finished product to you that you thought was sincere. You thought it was without wax. You thought it was faultless. You thought that this was good workmanship. But he would present something to you with wax that was covered And over the course of time, the marble or the stone would not erode, but that wax would erode, and you would begin to discover that there was a fault there and something was wrong. And first century purchasers of items would oftentimes require on the bill of sale that something be sincere, that something be without wax. And Paul's prayer here is so that Christians, so that this church at Philippi will be sincere and without wax, that these people would be genuine. That they would not be plastic. That they would not be fake. That they wouldn't fake their Christian life. The the Bible word for that is often feigning, f e i g n i n g, feigning, feigning prayers or feigning the faking it. And Paul is saying, if this is if this is real in your heart, that love is increasing, and your knowledge of God and His will in Jesus is increasing and your moral insight is becoming a bit more robust, then this is going to equal spiritual vision. You're going to be able to discern between what's good and best. You're going to have spiritual validity, and you're going to be real. You're going to be sincere. You're going to be authentic. You're going to be without offense until the day of Christ. Without offense does not mean that you're going to be perfect and live a sinless life. It literally means that you're going to not offend other people purposefully. That you are going to You're going to exhibit love, and with that love, you won't shy away from speaking the truth, and sometimes the truth can be offensive, but you're not going to offend people purposefully for the fun of it. You say, who would do that? Well, you would. I would. The Philippians maybe were in danger of that. You wouldn't have someone that pushes your buttons or incites you or persecutes you, and you purposefully push their buttons back, and you purposefully get even with them. And you try to exchange eye for eye. This is what Paul is is getting at. And oftentimes, spiritual immaturity will manifest itself in some really silly behavior with people who are non-Christian and what they do to Christians. I can remember this in my own life on on several different points in time. I'll share one. I was probably 18. Probably 18. I was a freshman in college and growing in my relationship with the Lord and just had a lot of growing and maturing to do. And I can remember that I had a good buddy and I, we worked at Lowe's for a, a period of time, and we had this coworker that worked with us who cursed like a sailor, which if you are in the, in the workplace and someone doesn't know Jesus Christ, then that, you know, that happens. That's, that's part of life. And we thought it was a great idea because this bugged us, because this annoyed us, that we would play a game with it and that we would be overly hyper-spiritual anytime this guy cursed. That if he wanted to push our buttons, we would push his. He wasn't a Christian guy. So instead of, of loving him and trying to witness to him or trying to invite him to church, our solution, which is entirely childish, our solution was if he said, beep-de-beep, beep, we'd say, Jesus is good, isn't he, man? Jordan isn't God good. That was our solution. What were we doing? We were trying to push his buttons. We were being very immature and purposely offending someone when we didn't need to purposely offend someone. Our Christian walk didn't necessitate us to, to you know, be Billy Bible and try to, try to annoy this guy because he annoyed us. That was not the solution at all. And Paul understands that if there really is genuine love for other people, if there really is this, this knowledge of God and his will in Jesus, if there really is this, this moral insight that you have, this is going to manifest itself in a valid walk that's sincere. It's not plastic. It's not fake. A walk that is without offense until Jesus comes, that doesn't want to or find some sort of weird delight or or, or glory in making someone angry. Have you been married for any length of time? You've had this happen. They ticked you off, so you wanted to tick them off, right? We call it the crazy cycle. You're just exchanging madness. They made me angry. They didn't. They did. He said, she did, and so now what do you want to do? You want to respond in kind, and you're not being loving at that moment. You're, you're offending them purposefully, and you're getting a little bit of satisfaction, and it's making your, your little evil heart feel good about it, right? And Paul is saying when you, when you are understanding who Jesus is, knowledge of him, when your love is growing, and you're valuing them and wanting to seek their benefit, you don't do that stuff. That that doesn't come out of you. What comes out of you is caring for them. What comes out of of you is a valid walk, an authentic walk. And he says the the fruit of this root, of this powerful prayer, the fruit is you're going to have spiritual insight. The the fruit is that you're going to have spiritual validity. And beyond that, you're going to have spiritual vitality. Verse number 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness and just in case he wasn't clear about it, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. There's three parts here, and it tells us what spiritual vitality really looks like. There are, what does what spiritual vitality look like? Fruits of righteousness. That literally on the outside manifesting itself is right behavior, is choosing to do right, is choosing to put others first, is choosing to, to, to have fruits of righteousness. That will manifest itself. And how does this happen? Well, Paul's very clear. It's by Jesus Christ. And why does this happen? It happens to the glory and the praise of God. Man, if you could summarize the Christian life and you could just get hold of that one verse, you would go a long way. That what's going to to happen in your life if this prayer is materialized is there's going to be fruits of righteousness that come, not by you, but by Jesus. Jesus is going to work in you from the inside out. Fruits of righteousness will manifest itself, and that's not so you can give yourself an attaboy. That is so God can get glory and praise and honor, and you can say, you know what? There's nothing good in me. This is I'm not able to do that or choose that or to how do you care for people so much? How do you share your faith so well? How do you? It's not me. God's doing for me what I cannot do for myself. And so that is to his praise and glory and credit. If there's anything good in you or in me or in your family or in our church family, that's to the, to the praise and glory of God. And Paul says the fruits of righteousness that as a Christian you should long for. You should want. You should crave to have a life that's authentic and, and real and is bearing fruit in tangible ways. He says that that is going to come By Jesus Christ. And I I have experienced this over and over and over again in my own life. If if I could summarize my own Christian walk, 20 years of being saved, that verse would would really encapsulate it. I spent the first maybe eight, nine years of of my salvation experience from junior high all the way to college trying to produce fruits of righteousness, having a desire for that, but i was not doing it by jesus christ my 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 theory on how i could make this happen that i learned somewhere was that i was going to i was going to will myself i was going to produce my own fruit i would i would go through a year of making bad decisions and acting like a knucklehead. Then summer camp would roll along and youth group would go to summer camp. We'd be away from from TV and phones and everything for five days and we'd hear a whole bunch of preaching. Thursday night of summer camp would come. Finally it all come crashing down and I would repent of all my wrong things that I'd done all year long. I'm so bad. I'm so stupid. Why did I do that? I know that Jesus is better. I've had such a good time at camp and all we've done is be in the Bible and sing and pray and this is so often. So I know I said this last year, guys, but I'm going to do this this year for real. I'm making the decision and, and I'm going to turn a 180 and I'm, I'm not going to do that but I'm going to do this and, and I'm really going to do it this year never realizing that, that the whole time all I'm saying is I'm going to will myself and I'm going to do it 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 and underneath it all was this I'm going to twist my own arm behind my back I'm going to white knuckle my behavior and I'm going to control everything I will produce fruits of righteousness in, my, in myself because I will choose between what's, what's, what's good and bad I will make the right decision and you know what I found Next year. I know I said it last year, guys, but over and over and over again. I was, I was wanting fruits of righteousness. I understood as a Christian that should be part of my life. But it, but it, wasn't, it wasn't through love and, and increasing in knowledge and judgment. It wasn't by Jesus Christ. And eventually I came to the point where I understood I'm not going to be able to do that on my own. I'm not going to be able to will myself or control myself or just do it out of duty. Sure, I went to church faithfully. Sure, I prayed a little bit. Sure, I read my Bible sporadically. Sure, I shared my faith as a check off my to-do list. I hope God's not mad at me anymore and and I'll just, you know, get get this share my faith for an hour thing done. Sure, I did some of that. There were some motions in my Christian life, but it was not energized by Jesus Christ. It was not by faith in Him. It was not, "Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need you to do this through me. I need your help." That was not there. But when I came to the point where I understood it's only by Jesus, and what we talked about this a couple weeks ago in Colossians, that as you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk ye in Him, just as you came to faith in Jesus and you said, "Lord, I'm wrong. And I can't save myself, and I can't forgive myself, and I can't do this myself. And I, in faith, turn to you, and I ask you to do for me what I can't do for me. It's only that perpetual motion, that redundancy of recognizing faith in Christ over and over and over again, that, Lord, my heart's wrong, and, Lord, my desires are wrong, and, Lord, I can't do this, and I can't, I can't be a good parent or a good, a good husband or a good uh, employee or a, or a good Christian or whatever. I can't do it on my own. And I come to you and I tell you I'm needy. I come to you and tell you I need you to work through me. I put my faith in you and say, do for me what I can't do for myself. It's only then, by Jesus, that the fruits of righteousness begin to be born. And I didn't even realize what I, I had realized something. I discovered it without even knowing it. I began to walk with the Lord and and to pray and to get in his word, not because someone was inspecting me or wanting me to, but because I desired it. And that desire began to, to grow exponentially and began to materialize itself. And all of a sudden, the things that I was trying to change myself were changing on their own. And all of a sudden, my desires were shifting. And all of a sudden, this behavior that I had tried to fix and fix and fix and fix and fix for so long now was just coming naturally to me because I was, I was enjoying relationship with God. I was enjoying getting to know Him, and that was, that was working in me. And you can find this to be true in your own, if you're there and you think the Christian life has just been one failure after another after another, and I, I just can't seem to get a handle on this and figure it out. Can I tell you, there's spiritual victory and vitality there for you. Get out of the driver's seat and put Jesus behind the wheel. And don't, and don't, don't get in the passenger seat and try to coach him. Get in the trunk and just say, Jesus, drive. Take this. I can't do it. Does that mean that you have no effort? Well, okay, then I'll just sit at home and I'll just pray like that, you know, and I'll, I'll never go to church. I'll never, no, you, you have to apply yourself, but it's his working in you. The Bible tells us this over and over and over again. The good shepherd restores your soul, Psalm 23. Isaiah 40, you wait on the Lord. You look to him, you long for him. You, 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 you put your eyes on him, and he will renew your strength and make you to mount up with wings as eagles and run and not be weary and walk and not faint. He will do that. Colossians tells us this over and over again that it's, that it's his working which worketh in me mightily. That it's only through him that the fruits of righteousness are born, that true vitality comes through your life and that is meant and designed to be to the, to the praise and the glory of God. And you have to, you have to step back and read that section and ask yourself the tough question, does that sound like my Christian life? At all. Does would I have the ability, typically, to discern between what's what's good and best? Is this real? And you know, you know if it's real. You can fool a lot of people and put some wax on that and cover that up. You know if it's real though in, your, in your heart. Am, am I am I faking this? Am I putting on a show? Is there a facade? Am I plastic? Are there fruits of righteousness that are being born? Not not because I'm making myself, but because I want to. Is that coming out of me? If, If the answer is no, then let me help you address the problem. The prayer that Paul prayed for this church would be a fantastic prayer for you to pray. For you, for your kids, for your grandkids, for our church, pray it for me, please. I would love you to. To pray, Lord, help us to abound in love, more and more. And may that love be in knowledge. May that love be in moral insight and good judgment. We want fruits of righteousness in our life and we understand it's only by you. So Lord, would you do this in and through us? We look to you, we turn to you. We want to do our best, but we know that our own power and our own strength can't do it, so Jesus work through me. I put my faith in you, I give you control. That would be something that I would recommend you pray. That would be where I recommend you get. Because until you do, you're not gonna have the the vision and the authenticity and the vitality that you need in your Christian walk until you get there. And Paul understands this and he prays for this church a simple prayer. And my hope and desire is that you would begin to pray this for you and for your family and for our church. And his prayer is simply this. I pray that your love would abound more and more and knowledge, and in all judgment. And if that happens, then the fruit bears itself. It works itself out. It comes naturally. So let's make that our goal. Let's make that our goal. Not a laundry list of, of do's and don'ts. Not a, not a here, let's, let's regiment behavior and, and forget Jesus. Let's make that our goal. Love more and more I value other people and I seek their benefit. Knowledge, understanding, and knowing more and more of God and his will in Jesus Christ. Moral insight, beginning to learn that. Some of that comes with experience. Lord, would you help that to be us?